Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Dana Winters of the Fred Rogers Center to the show to discuss how Mr. Rogers created a safe haven for children. Part two will be released on May 24th. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. And I am so, so excited for the guest that I'm going to be speaking with today. Well, maybe many of you are too young to remember watching Mr. Rogers, but I grew up watching Mr. Rogers. And if there was a person who epitomized a safe haven and a secure base for children. It was Fred Rogers. And I wanted to do an interview about his life and all of the things that he believed were important for young children and for the development of young children. So I was able to obtain an interview with Dr. Dana Winters from the Fred Rogers Center. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Winters before we begin our interview, where we will be talking about the life and legacy of Fred Rogers. So Dr. Winters is the executive director of the Fred Rogers Center for Early Learning and Children's Media. Dana Winters seeks to apply and advance the legacy of Fred Rogers in the ways that he served both children and helpers through various projects of involving children's helpers across many diverse settings, including childcare, school systems, community programs, residential care, and children's hospitals. She communicates and reflects what is simple and deep about the work of service of children and their families. She supervises the Fred Rogers Center Research Lab and partners with educators, trainers, advocates, and researchers to focus on identifying and amplifying the simple active ingredient that universally helps serve children, and that is the power of human connection. She joined the center after serving as a senior evaluator for the Collaborative for Evaluation and Assessment Capacity at the University of Pittsburgh School of Education and as an educational counselor. Um, She also works with um, the Educational Opportunity Centers at Penn State and holds a PhD in Administrative and Policy Studies from the University of Pittsburgh out there near where Mr. Rogers grew up and also has an MA in Education from Indiana University of Pennsylvania as well as a BA in Sociology from St. Vincent College. I think that you are really going to enjoy this interview. I happen to be uh, taping uh, her intro 
following the interview instead of before. So I know what is in store for you guys today and I can't wait to share it with you. So I will be coming right up with Dr. Dana Winters from the Fred Rogers Center. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. This July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock launches the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience in a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the development Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. Well, hello, Dr. Winters, and thank you for joining us on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. You are the executive director of the Fred Rogers Center, and we are going to be talking today about the life of this amazing man. Yes, yes. Uh, so I am. I'm the executive director of the Fred Rogers Center, and we're located in Fred's hometown. So I am talking to you today from the original Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Oh, I love that. I love that. So, you know, when I thought about wanting to talk with you, you know, how does Mr. Rogers relate to the topic of attachment? And, you know, to me, he does in so many ways when he, it's almost like if we want to use Bowlby's language of a safe haven and a secure base, you know, he came into the room, living rooms of people's families all over the country and was that safe haven and secure base for so many kids. He really was. And I'll tell you, one of the joys of my position is being able to travel and hear people's Mr. Rogers or Fred Rogers stories and to hear about the role that he played in their childhood as that secure, safe haven, um, as the kind of parasocial relationship that we've come to know through television screen. He was really the first person to welcome children in a way through a television screen that felt like a real, true relationship. And he also credited that. He would talk very often about how he truly saw the interaction that he had through a television screen as a relationship with whomever was on the other side. Yes, yes. Well, before we get more into his life, I would like if you could share with listeners a little bit about, you know, what the Fred Rogers Center does. First of all, I want to say I'm so happy that you exist because I know from sort of obsessively reading biographies and watching movies about Fred Rogers. He was so against any kind of commercialism or any way exploiting children to like 
you know, keep build a gigantic entrepreneurial enterprise. And so that, and those values are so beautiful, but, you know, it makes one worry, oh no, will all of this continue? So I'm so happy you guys exist and tell listeners what you do. Well, thank you. I'm glad we exist too. Uh, So the Fred Rogers Center, it was envisioned by Fred. Uh, When he was finishing his time in television, he was thinking about what came next. He wanted to continue to work with children, work in service of children's helpers and families. And he thought what better way to do that than on a college campus where he could teach and he could research and he could support the next generation of children's helpers. So we are located, as I said, in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. It's about an hour east of Pittsburgh. It's Fred Rogers' hometown. And strangely, you might think, we are located on the campus of a Catholic Benedictine college. And so Fred Rogers was not Catholic. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister, but he had a very deep friendship with the Archabbot here at St. Vincent for over 30 years, Archabbot Douglas Nowicki who was a child developmental psychologist by training and had consulted on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and who was a very dear friend of Fred's. So when Fred entrusted his center, his legacy, he did so with friends here at St. Vincent. We are the oldest Benedictine monastery, still a functioning Benedictine monastery. And we have that opportunity to extend Fred's vision, although we don't know a lot of what he wanted to do. So we opened just right after he had died in 2003. So Mm -hmm. we knew that it was coming. He had had some planning meetings, but he didn't really write down what his plan was. He was going to teach. He was going to research. Um, So in the last 20 years, we've come to identify our place in extending and um, really carrying forward Fred's legacy. And we see that as our role in supporting the families and helpers who are contributing to the healthy development of children. So Mm -hmm. we don't work with children, but we, uh, according to our mission statement, we invest in the strengths of families, of caring adults to support the healthy development of children. Mm-hmm. So we work with, in Mr. Rogers' words, we work with the helpers. Yes. Yes. That's so wonderful. And now does your, another thing that has made me very happy. I have a five-year-old granddaughter and um, she watches Daniel Tiger and we bought, but Daniel Tiger goes to the dentist book the first time she went to the dentist. So is there any connection with, 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 with Daniel Tiger and some of the things that are carrying on some of the characters that Mr. Rogers created? Between sure, so there guys? Are, yeah, sure. There are, there are two organizations who are uh, officially carrying on the legacy of Fred Rogers. One is the Fred Rogers Center. The other is Fred Rogers Productions. which was Family Communications. It was Fred's production company that produced Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And they are the producers of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Odd Squad, Don Quixote, Alma's Way. So they are children's media producers. But much of their material is still informed um, by the center through the Fred Rogers Archive. So we're home to the Fred Rogers Archive, which right now is about 22,000 items from Fred's life. And that's all of the scripts, 
from all 895 episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the notes, the process that went into creation of those scripts, all of his speeches, sweaters, of course, and tennis shoes, uh, the puppets. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the production teams will visit here and then they are um, very much committed to being sure that his values and philosophies are coming through the programming that they are creating for this generation of children. So you guys, in addition to your work with the helpers and, and those working with children, you're kind of a brain trust for all of the things throughout all of his career. Uh, I, I guess that's a, a one way to put it, although brain trust feels slightly uncomfortable. Um, but our we have a, a small staff here, uh, but the heart of that staff is our archivist, Emily Uren, who is the only archivist for the Fred Rogers Archive in its history. And so I, I like to joke that Emily has probably forgotten more about Fred Rogers than the rest of us even know. But she is, she is an incredible resource and she is able to uh, masterfully select items for researchers and for children's media producers, for students to be able to engage around just an, an unending legacy. Fred was so much more than just a television host. He yes. was a humanitarian. He was a public intellectual. He was a child development mind. And, and it goes on and on. Yes. And it's our responsibility at the center to, to bring all of that knowledge forward and meet other people and their experience and expertise and empower them to use that knowledge of Fred's values and philosophies to craft a new way forward. Mm. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about Fred's childhood. Let's let's start talking, you know, about his life and and what how what informed the person he became and what he chose to do. Um, I've read, you know, some biographies about him and things that he was uh, sickly and and somewhat lonely as a child. He was. He he suffered from allergies, you know, not something today that would uh, maybe hamper our children's ability to be outdoors. But at that time, it was a little less known. And, um, you know, he was it was a little bit thicker, especially in the summer months when an allergy to pollen in Western Pennsylvania can can be pretty serious. It can. And I remember my dad being out flat on the couch, having moved oh, yeah. here from Washington State, just like letting his nose drip. I mean, it was very debilitating. Mm -hmm. And that was really, um, that affected him very deeply. But, you know, so that was, was one part where he was oftentimes, um, you know, separate from other children his age mm -hmm. um, because he wasn't able to go out and, and play. He was inside because it was, you know, it was difficult for him with his allergies. Uh -huh. But even even with that experience, he talked often about how valuable his family was in appreciating him for who he was and appreciating children. And in that day and age, it was very different for children to feel like they could uh, they could be seen and heard and he it was you know a part of his childhood was that he even though he may not have had a lot of peer interaction because of being sick he had a lot of deep interaction with especially his grandfather who was a, a pivotal person in his life yeah yeah 
And so then, you know, I guess he did, um, you know, eventually uh, as he got older, he was more involved in things in high school and things like that. So, you know, and, um, you know, then I started reading all of these things, how he lived in New York City and he composed music. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm reading this stuff and I'm like, what? I'm like, what? You mean he wrote all the music for that? And I, I'm, you know, as I'm, I'm reading all of these exciting things that he did and I'm in shock. I'm in shock. Like almost like this one man was running around doing all of these things, the puppeting, the music, everything like maybe share a little bit how he got into all of those things and then decided to bring them into a TV show. Sure. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why our archive is bursting at the seams right now is he did so much. But you're correct. He was a student of music. So he transferred from Dartmouth to Rollins College to study music, mostly because Dartmouth didn't have a music department at the time. And so at Rollins, he has a degree in music composition and was then going to join the seminary. He was going to be uh, a Presbyterian minister comes home, discovers television, and says, nope, that's what I'm going to do next. Off to New York City he goes, works in television there, eventually does become a Presbyterian minister. Uh, but, you know, there's a, a Fred Rogers quote when he was giving a speech to a group of oncology social workers and, and folks in the medical field and pediatricians at the Academy of Pediatrics, where he says that each one of us is so much more than any one thing. And that is certainly true of Fred. Um, I think oftentimes we want to put him in a, a bit of a box and say he was Mr. Rogers and that's it. But Mr. Rogers was Fred, but there were so many other parts to him too. He, uh, he did. He wrote every music composition. He and Johnny Costa, who was his musical director for a long time, partnered on the, the music compositions for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And we find those music compositions everywhere. Recently, we, I was looking at a speech and I turned over a page and he had drawn a staff of music and started to compose just on the back of a page. Um, so we're constantly finding little places where he started to compose music. There was just so much flowing out of this man. It's just remarkable. You know, I think as a you know, I've had this interesting process of thinking as a child when I used to watch the show. And then, you know, there's been, you know, in the last 10 years, two, 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 like the documentary one. And then the one with Tom Hanks about, of course, I've gone to both of those and um, different books. And it's, it's so funny as an adult to, to read everything that went in, into that, you know, you're watching it as a, as a child and I am thinking, well, yeah, I know they're puppets, but I think there's lots and lots of people like each puppet has a separate person. You know, that's not true. He was doing a lot of the puppeteering and, um, it's just, uh, and again, it never occurred to me that he would have written the entire script and all the music for every show. Like, I don't, I just don't understand how he could do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was, it was quite a feat. That's for sure. And I think, you know, as adults, we can appreciate the level of work that it takes, but even just at, at surface value, there was a lot of work, but if we look to his process of creation, and his process of coming to those scripts and the music, the level of intention that he brought to everything that he did. Um, he was a student of child development, and he 
intentionally selected every word of that script to reflect what children needed in those moments. He worked alongside Dr. Margaret McFarland, who, uh, you know, had it been different time, we'd be talking about her far more than we would be talking about someone like Dr. Benjamin Spock or Dr. Eric Erickson. The three of them worked together at the University of Pittsburgh. And he relied on his conversations with Dr. McFarland to be sure that he was um, bringing his 50% of the program to children and meeting children where they were. And that level of intention, we can't ignore, you know, all of the depth that went into developing every single episode of the program. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know that um, he, as you say, you know, he consulted with people with lots of training in child development, you know, had so much education himself about it, you know, and um Maybe that's why it feels so special. I think it is. And I think it's why we're still talking about it right now as grownups. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we feel, I'm sure there's a piece of nostalgia for the feeling we had while we watched, or maybe the person who was next to us who watched alongside. But as grownups, we're talking about his values, his philosophy, his pedagogy of programming, because it still resonates with us as adults. He did not tell us, you know, that it's through relationships that you learn best and grow best, but only until the age of eight. That was lifelong. And a lot of the lessons that he instilled, a lot of the values that he showed were not reserved just for child development. They are true of human development. Mm -hmm. That every person wants to know that they are loved and capable of loving. That doesn't stop. That continues for us. You are special was an invitation. It was, you are special and let's talk about why. And let's Mm -hmm. continue to think about what makes us radically special. And I think that those lessons live on and it's why we continue to talk about him. It's not because we all want to change into sneakers and a red sweater, although I have one right behind me. It's because we we want to remember that those values are still important and we can still live them as grownups. Yeah, I'm thinking about his um, quote, I like you just the way you are. And so simple, but so profound and so foundational for children to feel and and as you said for anyone you know if you're thinking um you know carl rogers you know (laughs) that's what it you know makes me think of that you know the innate value of of each person just the way they are you know just so wonderful certainly and i think i like you just the way you are was the beginning of the message and he gave that to us but it's, I think it's our responsibility to now, as grownups who want to either communicate this to children or to other grownups, to go on to the next question, which is how. So how do we convey to children? How do we convey to others that they are valued, that they belong, that we like them just the way they are, and here's why? So it's one thing to say it, but he really, truly believed in pushing even further so that we can articulate for ourselves why we are liked just the way we are. 
and that we can continue to do that through our relationships with others. That's part of the work that we do at the center here is to really promote and encourage these opportunities for relationships where we can express to children and helpers and families and one another that we like you just the way you are and that we can extend that beyond just the two of us. I also know uh, such a important part of his understanding about children was that it was important to be able to, to talk about things. And as you said, you know, some of just his ideas of how he thought about children were not the norm of the day. And it was also not the norm to talk about hard things with children. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear a little bit about that and how you feel he did that and why he felt that was so important. I think one of the reasons why it was so important is because he was such an agent of respect for childhood for exactly what it was, which was childhood. It was not respect for childhood as a means to an end, but respect for childhood as itself. And that respect meant that there were topics and difficult subjects that children could understand and that children could know about if given the opportunity in an appropriate way. And that was one thing that uh, I'm always amazed when I go back and read any scripts or anything of, of Fred's writing when he interacted directly with children was the way that he was able to communicate with children in a way that met them where they were, but didn't talk down to them. He didn't um, skirt around the truth. He was always very honest in his uh, discussion of difficult material, especially, you know, when he, with Death of a Goldfish, he was very clear in how he talked about the goldfish no longer being alive, that goldfish was dead, and talking about how it made him feel when, you know, his dog, Mitzi, had died also. And he was very clear in the language that he used, very honest, and wasn't afraid to really just talk about it in a way that made children feel like they were a part of that conversation, that the conversation about difficult things wasn't happening to them, but it was happening with them. And as we go on and we look at, um, you know, he did a week around divorce, he did a week around making mistakes, and talked about these things in a way that children could understand and that children could feel that they were valued within those conversations too. Yeah, I, I think about, you know, I watch some of the shows now under the guise of, I, mean, I have them on for my granddaughter, um, <laughs> but really, I still like to watch them. Mm -hmm. And um, there is, I, I, I like what you're saying about, you don't feel like you're being talked at and you know, how did he accomplish that through a TV screen? I mean, how, I mean, part of it, part, it, it even, it's not even just the content. It's the way he looks at you and the tone of his voice and the pace and the cadence, all of it. Like it somehow feels like you're right there with him. What do you have to say about that? It, it's true. It is. And it's, um, you know, it's the, the way that he communicated with people. 
And what you said is correct about the pacing of his voice, the tone, the wait time where he would ask a question or he would say something. He just leaves space available for thinking or for responding. Um, It's also, I think there were some key characteristics of his communication with others that were and still are, I think, just uh, kind of remarkable when we think of of interacting or conversing with families and children. He was very careful that the language that he used was inclusive of many different experiences to the point that he even went back and re-recorded some segments when, you know, early in the 90s, re-recorded some segments from early in the 70s where he talked about women as being housewives or staying home. And it was no longer, you know, that lived experience wasn't as relevant as it was. And he was very careful to go back and and re-record that to not exclude any child's experience. Mm-hmm. He was very careful not to be overly prescriptive to say, you know, if this happens, then this will happen. It was very much um, you know, less prescriptive and less certain than what we would experience today. Uh, you know, this is what is happening and this will happen next. There was a lot of this could be, this might be to allow for flexibility in the experience and circumstance. And that also opened up for questions. You know, he talked about how sometimes our questions are far more important than our answers, which means at the end of 26 minutes of programming, we were left with questions. Not everything was neatly tied up because that's real life. We don't have our problems neatly tied up at the end of 26 minutes that it's okay to leave room for the human experience within that screen too. And that's something that I think, again, I credit the intention that he went to, but also um, the way that he was, he slowed down, he took his time and he allowed room for those questions to be a part of what seemed like a one-sided uh, communication mechanism, but it certainly wasn't. How many of us answered his questions? How many of us sang alongside him and truly believed that we were, uh, you know, we made today a special day by being with him? Yes, yes. Oh, Dr. Winters, this has just been so wonderful. Listeners, we are going to continue our conversation about the legacy of Fred Rogers and all that he taught us next week. So please join us for part two of our interview with Dr. Dana Winters joining us from Fred Rogers Center. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.